Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Welcome everyone to episode 34 of Dealmaker Diaries. Today we have with us Mr. Arye Scheinbein. And his name is a perfect metaphor for his track record as a wealth architect. His given name derives from the Hebrew word meaning lion. He is every bit of a lion for those he works with. Passionate, courageous, protective, and willing to fight for the valuable assets his clients entrust him with. Aryeh's bread and butter is helping successful business owners and entrepreneurs invest their money intelligently, allowing their wealth to accumulate so they can stay focused on what truly matters, their businesses and mission. He spent his entire career sharpening his operational experience with investments and valuing businesses, having worked with top private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, investment managers, and banks as well as a wealth of success in the e-commerce and Amazon selling spaces. Arye is particularly skilled in managing large, complex projects and teams, a credit to his excellent executive leadership skills rooted in finance, business strategy, marketing, and operations. When he's not sculpting the financial futures of his clients, Arye loves coaching his kids' sports teams, donating his time to various nonprofit organizations, and enjoying quality time with his four wonderful kids and amazing wife. He also hosts the iTunes Top 100 Ranked Inside the Lion's Den podcast, a show that explores the leadership skills, financial acumen, and operational improvements required for sustained entrepreneurial and financial success. So with that, let's give Arye a warm welcome to the show. Let's go. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Excellent. So why don't we jump right in before we start? Tell us a little bit about um, your background and how you got into um, wealth management and advisement. Sure. Um, Well, so my background is I, I, I guess I went the more traditional route. I went to school, went to college, got a finance degree. Um, and then went into investment banking. So out of school, I got a degree um, in finance, like I said, and then went to work for JP Morgan in their investment banking um, group. And really wasn't like, I, I had spent probably junior and senior year doing what I would call informational interviews, networking with people who worked at all different investment banks. So when I when I graduated, thankfully I had a number of offers from different investment firms um, and understood the difference between um, investment banking and equity research and sales and trading and all different things related to capital markets. So when I, when I got in there, um, I think one of the things I didn't realize was how entrepreneurial I really was. But back then that wasn't really a thing. It wasn't really like, oh yeah, you know, go work for yourself or go start an online business. We didn't have cell phones the way we do today, little computers in our pockets, you know? Um, And so almost immediately after I got my job, I found myself, um, I got married and then if my wife went to bed early, 
she, I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? And I found myself online uh, starting to get into e-commerce. So a good 20 years ago, I was selling online, started with eBay, ultimately got into Amazon. And I was finding basically disconnections in the markets where what, you know, in, in, in stocks and in companies, we would call this arbitrage. And now a lot of people, you know, call physical product arbitrage, but back then it didn't even have like a, a you know, an industry name. Um, I would find places to buy things and resell them at a higher markup. And then I ultimately got into wholesale and I started growing the businesses and I started learning email marketing and all these different things. So my career was advancing on one side and my side businesses were advancing on the other side. So I was juggling an entrepreneur, you know, nighttime and, and um, you know, weekend gig while advancing in my career of advising companies how to buy and sell different companies, what made good sense, what was good value, um, and ultimately moved from the investment banking side to um, I worked at a, a private equity firm and a venture capital firm where we invested in you know early startup businesses, um, worked inside lots of funds for a number of years. And now even today, I work where I basically advise um, private equity firms and hedge funds on the value of their investments or the businesses that they have that are not publicly traded. So when we think about Apple or Google or Tesla or Facebook, right? these are publicly traded stocks that everybody can get a quote on but I advise them on non-publicly traded companies. What is the value of a business? What is What can make it more valuable? How can we exit it? How can we make it um, acquire something and make this you know, combined entity better or whatever it is? And ultimately they're gonna probably sell it at some point. Um, and the same with real estate. So I was doing all this professionally and mm. at the same time learning, taking a lot of these skills and learning how to grow my own businesses at night. Um, and dealing with a lot of online entrepreneurs. And what I found was, is I was making my own investment decisions because of my career, as well as anything I learned along the way, um, whether it was in private companies or in public companies, as well as in real estate. So um, I probably got into real estate before a little early 2006, 2007, went through the 2008, you know, kind of call it crash. Um, Certain things went horribly wrong. Certain things, <laughs> thankfully, didn't go as bad as it could have gone. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. Um, learned a lot along the way there. And as everything kind of came out through the ashes, I, I got more involved personally in investing in multifamily and self-storage deals where I generally am <laughs> not the oper operator, but I work alongside these operators, get to know them, get to understand what their, their value proposition is invest personally and then help them if they need sometimes, um, you know, raise capital and things of that nature. So that's kind of my career or life in, in, in a nutshell. Okay. And so, I mean, you worked on Wall Street with investment banks and hedge funds. I mean, both of those seem like real intense environments. Yes. So yes. How, how does that compare to what you're doing now as far as um, stress and work-life balance, would you say? Yeah. So I, I, I mean, they're obviously very different in the sense that when there were certain funds that I worked at that I wouldn't say they felt that they owned you, but the idea that I had something on the side, I had to fully disclose, like if I had an Amazon business or if I had an e-commerce store or something like that, I would have to disclose it to their compliance group. They'd have to decide if that was a, uh, a conflict of interest of any level, but B, was there a possibility that I was taking away time from the fiduciary responsibility of the firm to their investors, to this, to this, to this, to this, that I could actually do this, which um, 
you know, is a little bit, I wouldn't say extreme, but it's definitely, you're beholden to them a little bit. And, um, you know, from that perspective, the expectation is very, you know, high that you are going to be performing to the top of your level and to your game um, all the time. Um, now, obviously, like these jobs come with, you know, high compensation, but they also come with high hours and they come with the expectation that, you know, they come first. And, you know, I have four kids and a wife and, and it's always been definitely a balance. There's definitely been a, been a juggle. Whereas this, um, I, think, I think when you're in, in an entrepreneurial environment, there are pros and there are cons in the sense that like some people are like, hey, I don't have a boss. Well, the con with that is if you don't get the things done, then you can't pay your own bills anyway. Um, and, and you can't push through to success. So if you're a person who needs structure and someone to always be telling you what the next thing is, you know, an entrepreneurial environment is not really good for you. Whereas if you're the person who's like, you always know that you, you're really good at getting things done and, and focusing on it without someone constantly motivating you, then an entrepreneurial environment, you know, or working for yourself may be a, may be a great fit. Exactly. Yeah, very true. So are you, so to that point, if, um, if I don't have a lot of time that I can allocate towards something, how can I make the most of my money? Yeah. So I, I think, I mean, it obviously depends on who you are and what you're doing. So like most people don't have a lot of time, right? Whether they're an entrepreneur or an employee, doesn't matter. They, most people just straight up don't have time. And the truth is, is like everybody has the same 24 hours in the day. It's a matter of like how you prioritize it. But let's assume the priorities are either your business and the mission of your business or your job and somewhere in the middle there, your personal life, however that may be, family, friends, whatever it is. Um, so in terms of like thinking about how you can make the most out of your money is the, the number one thing I, I tell people and like I'm actually I teach in, in my um, part time, I, I teach in my son's high schools, and I've been teaching this to, to high school kids now. And that is like, you have to think of your money as basically soldiers or, or some sort of entity that has to go out and recruit and get more of the other. So if it's, you know, if they're, they're people, if your money is people, it's got to go recruit babies or make babies or whatever it is. Right. So ultimately they have to be doing the multiplication of you. And so one of the things that like they probably should teach in school, they don't is something called, um, let's say the rule of 72. The rule of 72 is a simple um, math equation that basically says people are always like, well, how long will it take for me to double my money? Like how long will I have to make this investment or what kind of rate of return do I need in order to see this money double? And the rule of 72 is very simple. It says, if you take the number of years times the rate of return, if it, if it equals 72 when you multiply them, so let's use a, an investment that we make over eight years and we get a 9% return. So nine times eight is going to be 72, which would mean that in eight years, if I get 9% compounded every year, I will have doubled my money at the end of eight years. And simplistically, you're like, okay, that sounds okay, but it's going to take me eight years to double my money. Well, if we then do it another eight years at the same 9%, so now we're 16 years into this, we've doubled that money, right? So if I have $1,000 and it became 2000 at the end of 16 years, now it's 14000 It's $4,000. <laughs> But that also assumes that we didn't make any additional investments into that. So if we add to it every year and it's doing this thing, right, the money starts to really, really grow. And the best way to visualize this is 
I, I tell a story, it's, it's been in a number of books, different ways, but if I, if I can give you a magic penny, okay? And the magic penny, I offer you, I give you two options. I tell you, I can give you $5 million today, or I can give you a magic penny that will double every day for 31 days. You're like, okay, which one should I take? Well, $5 million or a penny that doubles every day for 31 days seems like, I don't know, not really sure. $5 million is a lot of money. I'd probably go with the $5 million. So if, if you start to do this, like day one, you have a penny. Day two, you have two pennies. Day three, you have four pennies. You're like, okay, I'm really behind here, right? And you kind of get, you, you get to like day 15 and I don't, I'm not, I'm doing this off the top of my head. So I don't remember, but like you're, you're maybe at like 60 to $120,000 or something like that when it's doubling. And you're like, I am screwed. I definitely made the wrong pick, right? And even when you get to day 29 or so, okay, you're only at like two to two and a half million dollars. You're so maybe 2.6 million at most. You're, you're in that zip code. And you're like, damn, wrong bet, right? And then on day 30, you cross 5 million. And day 31, you break 10 million. And so it's not until the end that you're like, holy cow, right? The whole time you're like, this is not working. This is a bad bet, right? And so it's the same with investing that if you look at Warren Buffett, how much he has made in let's say the last 10, 15 years versus what he made in the first 10 to 30 years of his life, it's astronomically bigger now because the numbers that are compounding are bigger. And so if, if people are like, hey, I don't have a lot of time, Rule number one is, okay, you need to make sure to start to invest today. Don't, you know, yesterday was better, but today is just as good. And you need to be continuously doing it. So I tell people like, it's nice to have a chunk of money to go put in to wherever you're going to put it in real estate or, or investments in crypto stocks, whatever it may be. But the most important thing is to be continuously doing it. So something that like, whether you're buying stocks, again, whether you're buying S&P 500, whether you're buying Bitcoin, whether irrespective, you want to be dollar cost averaging, right? Putting it in every month at a, at a, on a, a continuous basis. And it's going to grow at this compounding that we're looking at because you'll be buying at the highs, you'll be buying at the lows. So over time, you'll be buying right at that middle point. And so if you don't have a lot of time, you need to leverage your money to, for the money to kind of generate the returns for you. And using these concepts of, hey, rule of 72, and, and again, if you can get a 14% return, even better. But the, the, the concept is very simple. Like if you need to figure out how quickly it can double, use the rule of 72, and it'll give you a really good quick, you know, a good estimate of how, how quickly this is going to double, right? Like if we got a 10% return, it would be every 7.2 years, right? So as the rate of return goes up, the number of years it takes to double goes down because all we're doing is, is we're basically back solving into a 72 number. Okay. And, and do you recommend for, for, for like multifamily, you get most, uh, at least you hope to be getting um, cash flow with that investment as well. Do you recommend to your clients reinvesting that cash flow into the same asset or the similar assets as well? Yeah. So the way I think about it is, um, Typically, most, some people really like diversification, right? So they want real estate to be, let's say, 30%, 40%, 50% of their assets. Then they want stocks to be 20%, 30%, 40% of their assets. And then they want something else, right? Like everybody wants that. And then there are some people who are like, hey, I am strictly real estate. I don't believe in the stock market. I have no control over the stock market. I don't like the stock market. I want to be 100% in real estate. That's fine. So the question that you ask really, first and foremost, really depends on where they are in their life cycle. 
because there are two components. Real estate, like as you mentioned, has cash flow and it has appreciation. But if we're in the early stage of our career, let's say we're in our 20s, even if we're in 30s, even if we're in our 40s, we don't need to live off of that cash flow today, right? So we naturally want to reinvest that cash flow into something else. And so when you're doing these bigger projects, part of the challenge is, is you basically have to reaccumulate money to get into that next bigger project, right? Like if you're writing a 25 or 50 or $100,000 check into a multifamily, it has to reaccumulate. So obviously like as you deploy the money, as it comes back, you want that money to be ideally working a little bit for you in some sort of short-term capacity, but I want to put that right back. So the way I think about it is if this is in my real estate bucket, if it's in my 40, 50, 100%, whatever the allocation is to that asset class, when that money comes back, and I'm not living off of that money, but I'm rather I'm using that as an investment to compound, I want to redeploy that into that same asset class. And when I say same asset class, it doesn't have to be like if it comes off a multifamily, it doesn't have to go strictly back into a multifamily. It can go into a self-storage. If I feel good about an industrial deal, if I feel like there's something commercial that is interesting, that's all fine. Real estate is in that broader thing. And then if you want to get really granular and really specific and really de-risk and you're like, well, I don't want multifamily to be more than X percent of my real estate, you can. Some people are like, no, that's the only thing I do. I just do, you know, if I'm in real estate, I'm in multifamily. So that that's kind of more specific for the person. Okay. Okay, great. And um, so, so I recently heard the term um, product agnostic. Can, can you talk about that and explain what that is and why yeah. you want to be product agnostic? Yeah, so for my, my view is the following, and that is the financial services industry is one where, unfortunately, it's so fragmented in the sense that how do people get paid? How do financial professionals typically get paid? So if we, if we use a standard financial planner, a, a wealth advisor, or someone who works at an Edward Jones or Merrill Lynch or something like that, right? Like, how are they getting paid? They get paid to manage your money. And what that means is they ask you to entrust them with the money, and then they either allocate into different mutual funds or different stocks on your behalf, and you pay them a fee based on the assets that are under management. So if you give them $100,000 and they say, we're going to take 1% of that, right? So they'll take $1,000 a year. And if that becomes $200,000, then they'll get paid $2,000 a year. Now, some of these guys are also paid, like if they tell you to buy this mutual fund or this stock they may get a commission or something like that. The problem though is, is if you go to that guy and you say, well, I need, I want you to put 50% of my money into a multifamily deal. They're going to stare at you and say, that's awesome. I, I can't help you, right? Like there's no incentive for them to do it because they can't get paid that way. And most of them don't have the connections with the relationships or the, the ability to say, okay, this is part of our product offering. So to them, their products are mutual funds, annuities, stocks. And then if you need life insurance, their products are either term life insurance, whole life insurance, disability life insurance, whatever, you know, disability insurance, whatever it may be. And so they're product focused and they can't help you get into the real estate. And then the realtor, like if you want to go buy your own homes, right, their job is to like find you opportunities, but they're only paid if you buy the house. Right. So they're incentivized to have you, you know, close on a deal. Now, if you're going to be an investor, obviously it's slightly different. 
So my, my personal stance and my view is like, I, if I'm working with someone is I want to be product agnostic in the sense that like, I don't, it doesn't matter to me what product line, whether it's stocks, whether it's bonds, whether it's mutual funds, whether it's real estate, whether it's crypto, whether it's life insurance, whatever it is you want to go into, I want to be able to educate you and help you get the right thing that fits you and not be incentivized to have you do one over the other, because that's how I'm paid because I'm tied to that product. I am like, hey, I don't care because I'm not tied to any one product. Thankfully, from my, my experience, I know all the products. I can tell you about all the products and I can point you in the direction of like, okay, this is what you should be doing and here's why, but I'm not going to be incentivized to have you buy product A over product B. Whereas unfortunately, the financial service industry for the most part, and, that, and like I'm not saying that everybody, but for the most part, most people are very product vertical. And therefore, they're, they're incentivized to tell you that this product they work on is better for you, even though it may or may not be. Yeah, very true. Very true. Okay, thank you for that. And um, how, can, how can one grow their wealth without losing focus on the reasons they're in business in the first place? Yeah, so I think, I, I think that's one of the, the p- things that entrepreneurs and business owners in general like really struggle with, right? Like, mm-hmm. They're like, hey, I'm dialed into my business, whether they're solving world hunger or whether they're just creating some software that helps doctors get more patients, whatever it may be, right? At the end of the day, if they recognize like, hey, my asset of my business is really, really important. I want to grow this asset, right? So my day in, day out focus is the, the bulk of my value is tied up. My net worth is tied up in this business. But if I do have cash that's coming out and it's sitting in my bank account, I need that to be working, but I don't want to be thinking about it too much. They could do a lot of the things we've talked about, right? Like they can automate that they're buying the S&P 500, you know, $500 a month or whatever it is. They can be working with someone who says, hey, these are really attractive real estate investments that... I think are good returns, both from a cash flow basis, both from a market basis, from a potential appreciation basis. And therefore, when you think about syndicate, syndicated deals, those are probably the closest thing to passive investing in real estate as you can. Like a lot of people are, are out there marketing, go buy a single family home and you can rent it out and do all these things. At the end of the day, like unless you're going to go find the tenants and you're going to fix the toilet when it breaks and you're going to fix the roof when it leaks and do all those things, even if you get a management company to do that, now you have to actually oversee them to do that, right? So now you've created a job for yourself. You're no longer focused on your business. You're no longer focused on whatever your primary income is. You're now doing something else. And when you get into a multifamily deal and the operator, that's their job and they have a team and they have a whole, that's, the closest thing to passive you're going to get. Yes. And that and that's where you're like, okay, this is a good place to put your money because this deal makes sense, the economics make sense. And yeah, you may see a 15% return as opposed to a 18 or a 20% return, but you know what? Like you didn't have to do anything right. other than invest. Absolutely. Okay. And I talked to a lot of my family and friends about 401ks and how I think they're obsolete but i mean that's just my opinion but in, in your experience up to this point does contributing to a 401k still make sense for most employees in today's day and age so i think it depends the, the number one thing is if you are a regular employee right so you work for a company that you don't own let's start with mm-hmm. that that person okay 
the first question is, is, does that person get a match from the company? So a lot of companies will give some sort of matched contribution. So if they say, okay, if you invest 6% of your salary, we will match 3%, meaning half of the money that you put in, we'll give it to you, match it. If your company has a match, hands down, great use of money because you're getting a 50% return on your money, irrespective of what the market does. And so that, that's a good reason to do it. If your company doesn't offer you a match, the, the next question to ask yourself is, deep down, truly, truly, are you going to invest that money or not? Right? So the mutual, so the, the, the 401k industry was born about because companies got rid of pensions and they said, okay, now it's on you to save for your retirement. And the, the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of people don't do it if they don't take it out of their 401k. If they don't take it out of their paycheck, they just don't do it. And if you're disciplined and you could do it, then there are certain things you could do. But the benefits of the 401k, right, is it's pre-tax and, it's, and you don't even see the money come out. The challenge with the 401k is there are a few big challenges. Challenge number one, can't touch it till you're 59 and a half. That, that could be a pretty big challenge for some people, especially yeah. if you want to start a business and you want to use that money, right? Like you could borrow against it, but at the end of the day, like there's, there's fines and, and all this stuff. So number one, it's locked up till you're 59 and a half. Number two, if you're working at a, at a job, the plan that, they, that the company gives you is constrained by the, the investment vehicles that they offer in that plan. Meaning the company can say, okay, we offer you these five mutual funds and that's it. They may be great mutual funds. They may be crappy mutual funds. We don't know. You don't know. I mean, you could look and decide, but at the end of the day, that's it. You can't put it anywhere else until you leave that job. Once you leave that job, you can put it into a, a traditional IRA and you can buy whatever you wanted in there. But while you're working at that company, it's constrained to the plan's rules. So sometimes some plans are great. A lot of times plans are bad and they have high fees that you don't necessarily know about. And so it, it really depends. The answer is, is like, there's definitely value for it, especially with a match, especially who's someone who's not really gonna do it. But understanding what's inside that plan and the fee structure, that's kind of important. And so sometimes it's, it's a little bit dicey and people actually have no idea what's going on inside there. And for the layman, for general purposes, is, is there a way to find out and make sense of what those fees actually are? So you say, I, I've heard there are many fees. What are these fees? Can I get these in writing? How can one find out for sure? Yeah. So it, depending on your plan or whoever your plan is with, they usually tell you inside, um, inside the plan, they'll, they'll tell you different fees. So there's something called a administrative fee, right? So basically they're just charging you every year to manage the plan. Sometimes the, the, the employer, you're the person who runs the company, they're picking up that, the, that fee for you. And sometimes it's getting past you and it'll tell you usually there's a lot of fine print, you know, there's a 10%, uh, 10 basis points. So 0.1% uh, or 0.15. And then sometimes it's as high as like 0.4. So 40 basis points. So almost like a half a percent of an admin fee that you actually have to pay. On top of that, every single fund that you have a choice of will generally tell you what, what's called, um, there's, there's different names but there's an expense fee. So there's an expense ratio is what they call it. And it'll be either 1%, it'll be a half a percent, it'll be three quarters of a percent. And you wanna see as low as possible 
So when you have the option to invest in something like the S&P 500 index, so an index is basically nobody is actively managing it. They are just buying the largest 500 companies in the United States, the S&P 500. There, the fees are going to be like zero, you know, 0 0.1, so 10 basis points or 0 0.003, like three basis points. So it really depends. Like the, the indexes should have very, very low fees. The actively managed ones may have higher expense fees. So every, so the two things you'll ask for is in your plan, you'll ask, is there a plan administration fee? And then at the fund level, when you click on the fund summary and the fees, it'll tell you what the expense ratio is and you want to see it as low as possible. Okay, awesome. Okay, and last question, Arya, before we go on the lightning round. Um, what tips do you have for people who simply don't know what to do with their money? Yeah, so I think, I think tip number one is um, the fear of losing money is probably the thing that creates the most analysis paralysis. Everybody's always afraid that they're going to lose their money. So understand your personal profile, meaning are you very risk averse or are you willing to take gambles in life in general? Like how do you live your life? Because some people are just naturally very risk averse and some people are very naturally aggressive. And so I would never tell someone who's like, I'm, I'm petrified of this, I'm petrified of that, to go and bet it all on the next tech stock, crypto, all in one real estate project. My, my view for that person is like, hey, you have to like think about diversification, managing your own risk tolerance. But once you understand your risk tolerance and your willingness to get over the idea that like, hey, you're going to have wins, you're going to have losses, then I, the, the number one tip is like, just get it going. It doesn't have to be perfect. Even if you just go to whether it's Schwab or it's Fidelity, even Vanguard, and you start with $100 a month auto de debit from your bank account into a S&P 500, even if it's not making you millionaire overnight and it's not making you millions, just the process that you get it done will make you feel a lot better. Then you can start to explore like, okay, I'm doing this. Now, what can I do better? How can I grow this? How can I make more? The, the other concept I tell people is um, something called Parkinson's law. Parkinson's law has nothing to do with investing, but it has to do with basically however much time and space I give something, that is how much it will take. So if I give you two weeks to do a project and you say, well, normally it takes me four weeks. I'm like, well, you have two weeks, take it or leave it. You're going to get it done in two weeks. If I tell you, you have three hours to clean your closet, and you're like, well, it usually takes me two days. Well, if you want to get it done, you're going to get it done in three hours. You're going to do it. But if I say you have two weeks, you're probably going to wait till the last day of the two weeks to actually do your clean your closet, right? The same, same holds true with your monthly. If someone says to me, hey, I don't really have extra money to invest. I say, okay, how much, how much do you spend a month? Well, I spend $5,000 a month. So I say, how much do you make? And they say, well, I make $5,000 a month. I'm like, oh, you're right. You don't have any money, right? There's no, nothing to invest. So here's what we're going to do. You're only going to have $4,500 from now on a month. The other 500 is going to get invested for you. First person's probably going to freak out. They're going to be like, there's no way I can't do it. You go back to Parkinson's law and I tell you, you know what? Before you made 5,000, you probably made 3,000 and you made your life work on 3,000. So now you're going to have 4,500. 
I guarantee you'll be able to make your life work on 4,500 instead of the 5,000. Now, the first month you may be scrambling and screaming, and, uh, but it'll get done and it'll work. And once you see it get work once, you'll see that you can live off that way. And I'm not telling you like cut the latte and do the whole thing. I'm telling you that you probably don't realize where some of that money is going and you can, can find it if, if you really you know, make it a priority. Sure, sure. All right, excellent, excellent. So let's jump into the lightning round real quick and see what, what makes Aria tick. All right. All right, so just a softball one. What, what book or books have greatly influenced your life up to this point? Yeah, so I would say I'm, I'm not going to go with one. I'm going to go with a bunch because okay. they they're all in different ways, okay? So The Richest Man in Babylon is okay. an amazing book, especially just from a concept of money and how it grows and, and things of that nature and like, hey, understanding that you need it to work for you. Um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad probably read that 20, 25 years ago, whenever it came out. And again, I don't agree with everything in the book and I don't think like all the concepts are 100%, but they give you an idea of like, okay, working for myself, working for a company, owning a business and being investor, right? Those four quadrants, understanding the differences, very helpful for someone who's just like, hey, I'm not really sure and that kind of thing. Atomic Habits, excellent, excellent, excellent book by James Clear that just really frames getting habits into your life in making the changes that you want in, in a very tangible kind of way. I think he, you know, writes in a very clear way that really helps people, you know, for a lot of people can be understand it and take action. Um, and the last one I'll say, it's not that it has changed so much my life, but I just read it. And so I'm going to recommend, um, I like actually all of his books, Adam Grant. Um, but I just read Think Again by Adam Grant. And it is a really good book to help you sometimes rethink things. And when you are stuck on a concept that you think you know 100%, starting to understand the things you actually don't know, knowing what you don't know, recognizing the things that you don't know so you can actually go and learn something new. Um, so I would, I would give those four. Okay, good ones. Yeah, and I've, The Richest Men in Babylon, that's probably at the top of my list too. That was a very good one. All right, so how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Uh, yeah, so I think, I think there, there's definitely been failures. I can't like say, oh, there's only been perceived failures. There's definitely been straight up failures. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think one, one of the failures I would relate to is, is in 2008. It was really, in, we, we made an investment in a real estate deal in 2007. And that failure was you know, I think what I learned there is I had always known in business that the projections don't necessarily tie to reality, right? Mm -hmm. So like when I, someone makes a projection plan for their business, what are the odds of them hitting it? Too many unknowns. And in real estate, everyone's always assuming that like, hey, cash flow is X. If we make these changes, cash flow will go up 10% or cash flow will go up 3% and then it'll go up 6% and they'll go 8% because all the other things are gonna be fine. And what happened was in the location that we were, unemployment plummeted, right? So, or I should say it skyrocketed. People's employment just fell out off the tree because it was in Detroit, Michigan. So the factories, you know, car factories, people just lost tons of jobs. And the, the thing I learned there was 
you have to have um, a very good handle, not just on the rent expectation, but what is the debt service coverage ratio of the property truly at a much lower occupancy than, than currently, right? So in today's environment, when people look at things, cap rates are low, meaning values of these buildings are super high. Occupancies are high because everybody is looking for nice places to live or good areas to live. And everyone is underwriting and purchasing at these base case assumptions that it always, I've always been like, what is the downside? But that lesson in, in 2008 made me look at the downside much more carefully of whether I'm looking at the exit plan, whether I'm looking at the cash flow during the time, how do I feel like if everything goes wrong or what else could go wrong, how will this whole thing fare and how will they make it through? Whether it's from a cash reserve or ability to you know, bring in more tenants or raise rents, all these assumptions, it, it definitely made me kind of look at things differently in terms of going forward when, when I analyze deals. Okay, great. And we talked about, um, you talked about the book Atomic Habits um, just now. So what is a habit or routine that you really love? Um, yeah, so I think, I think so, I, I've changed some of my habits along the way. I'm not one of these 5 a.m. waker uppers. I'm not like, oh, you have to have these things. But I do find that one of the habits that really helps me is gratitude. Um, I started this with my kids a couple of years ago, and, and I've continuously tweaked the habit a little bit. And so there's a lot of these gratitude journals out there, and, and some worked for me, some didn't. But what I've tweaked it to is having, you know, trying to do it earlier in the day as opposed to the end of the day when you're tired. And thinking about like, what is one thing, a lot of them are like three things, but like, if what is one thing that I am thankful for today? So, cause otherwise what I found is, is like, you end up with a lot of the same things. I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm, gra- I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for, you know, my house, whatever, or, you know, whatever it is, pick something. And you'll find that those things can t- tend to repeat. But if you just pick like one thing that it was today, or if it happened yesterday, right? So if you do it first thing in the morning, then you're remembering yesterday, then, or some one thing I'm looking forward to today. And it doesn't have to be like life-changing. It just sets your mood for the day to be thankful and grateful for things to almost like, hey, naturally look for the good. You, you really will, that habit, I think will have a, a tremendous impact on, on people's lives. Okay. I might have to say about incorporating that into my daily routine as well. Okay, and um, what's your favorite place to think big? Yeah, so I, um, I, I, it's it's interesting. I recently started. Well, I shouldn't say recently. Like COVID, I started going on more on walks um, outside, and I'm in the Northeast, so we definitely like. I was outside today on a walk, and it was you know it's 15 degrees, and the wind chill is like two degrees, so it's not always there. I find that for me, it's being not in my normal place of either work or, or focus. So in my house, if I'm going to think, it's never in my office that I'm in. It's actually either at the dining room table, which is big, wide, and open. It's outside. When I was in college, I thought about this, like I would go to the library and 
some people like the little cubes to study and stuff like that. A lot of times I would try and find a big area that was open, but it was away from people. So I generally like to have space and it not be the place that I'm always kind of focused on. So whether in college it was, I was leave my dorm room, I'd go to the library. Here is either my dining room or I go for a walk or something like that. I need it to be outside of my, my normal space. Okay, a different space. All right, and last one. Well, actually last two. So what are some bad recommendations you hear in your day-to-day as far as investing? Bad recommendations. Oh, I mean, there's a lot of bad recommendations. I mean, I think in, in today's, today's market in particular, right, um, where so many people have made so much money, whether it's in crypto or tech stocks or things of that nature, and it's really just been a function of right place, right time, and not any real skill. The, the bad recommendations are like, just do it, go, go, go all in, be committed 100%. And can that work? Yeah, it can. But it also can lose a lot of people a lot of money. And it's the bad recommendations kind of come about because people have sometimes just gotten lucky or they don't tell you about the bad things that happen, right? Like your question to me is like, hey, what's um, a near fail, a failure or a near failure, right? Like if you look on social media, people don't like tout their mistakes. People don't yeah. tout all the losses, right? Like if, if I told you in the last two years, I tried to get more into active trading and instead of, you know, making a million dollars in active trading, you know, I kind of broke even because like I had some wins, I had some losses, but my losses were bigger than any of my wins. And what, you know, it's, who's going to follow me? Who's going to like my post? You know, so, you know, so, so the bad advice is just like understanding like where that advice is coming from and has that person had enough experience to whether they've had losses or not, and whether they're telling you those losses or not, do they have a reason why they've made those wins or has it just been like timing and luck? Okay. Sage advice. All right. And last one. What have you become better at saying no to? This is actually a really great question. And I'll tell you why I like the question for all your listeners. Okay. It's depending on your personality. Some people can always just say no. They're, they're, they say no to everything. It's easy. Yeah. And then some people are like people pleasers and they want to be liked or they want to be helpful or whatever it is. And I'm in that category, right? Like I want to be helpful. I, I enjoy helping people and I don't like saying no. But at the same time, um, saying no is really important. And so the things I've gotten really good at saying no to, it's not a category or specific thing. It's if it's not a yes immediately for me, like if someone gives me an idea and says, hey, what do you think about doing this with me? Or would you be interested in this? If I'm not immediately like excited by it and like, yes, I've gotten way better at saying no. Because the truth is, is that's that zone where I'd probably be like, oh, I want to help this person or I want to be nice. And it's really a no, but I should say no. And I dwell on it and I, you know, and I, like I end up doing it. Whereas now I'm like, it wasn't an immediate yes. It means it's going to probably be a no and I should just say no. Yeah. Okay, great, great, great. All right, good stuff, Arye. So yeah, before we hop off, um, if anybody wants to get in touch with you for 
collaboration or information or advisement? They want to be counseled by you. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Sure. So I think, um, you know, solution advisory is if you want to work with me, there's an, a quick five question application, uh, solutionadvisory.com. Um, you can head over. There's five questions there. Future fund me is uh, futurefundme.com is much more for the person who's like, Hey, I really don't even know how to begin. I don't know my journey. I don't know my path to kind of starting out. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at Arye, the businessman, hit me up in the DMs. I'm on LinkedIn, but those I'm probably the most active on, on Instagram. And then lastly, I have a podcast that's very different. Um, it's much more business focused and that's called Inside the Line. Okay, awesome. Awesome. All right, Arie, so um, again, thanks for hopping on. Very great um, information from you today. So happy to have you on. Hope to have you back sometime soon. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. All right. Thanks, Arie. Have a good one. You too. Take care. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.